things in the mighty name of the risen Jesus. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Good to be with you if you're new or you're visiting. Um, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing our study through those blessed attitudes, those be attitudes of the kingdom of God. And so we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching you, he's teaching me what his kingdom is like. He's teaching you what his kingdom is like. And so he begins his sermon by laying out these characteristics that define all of those who are blessed to be a part of his kingdom. Let's go ahead and read where we've been so far and see where we're gonna be today. Matthew 5, one through six, this is the word of God. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we've covered poor in spirit, we've covered those who mourn, we've covered the meek, and today we're looking at those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus says, you're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness because what will it lead to? Satisfaction. You will actually, the other translations say, will be filled You'll be satisfied. Now, this is an incredible promise given how elusive satisfaction can be in your life and in mine. Um, I sincerely, sincerely hope that you are familiar with the Broadway play Hamilton, okay? If you're not, I don't know how we can keep going together, okay? Um, It's incredible. I've listened to it more times than I can count. Last song gets me every time. I cry in the same moments every time. I get hype in the same moments every time. I haven't yet. Uh, if you see me in the car just jamming, it's probably Hamilton, okay? And I haven't been in the show yet, but it's some, I'm going to go into debt one day and buy some tickets. It's going to be great, okay? And, but it's one of the most popular plays in recent memory. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the reasons is just Alexander Hamilton as a character is fascinating, He's so fascinating, and his life is simultaneously epic and historic, and in some ways you can't relate to it, but in other ways there's these universal themes found in his life that all of us can relate to. And one of those themes that you see in his life is how often he was driven by a lack of satisfaction. Like how often he was driven to write the way he did and study the way he did and produce the works that he did was this desire to be satisfied. At one point in the play, It's a song called Satisfied. And he looks to another character and he says, you're like me, I'm never satisfied. And what you see in the the play as it goes on is it was this drive to be satisfied that led him to be a hero and a villain. That led him to protect and to destroy. And that eventually led him to the untimely death and a duel with Aaron Burr. If I just ruined it for you, then your history teacher failed you, okay? You should know that. Enough about the education system. So he wasn't simply driven 
He wasn't simply driven by an ambition for a position in the world. He wasn't simply driven by just a desire for our nation to look a certain way. It was this desire to be satisfied. And this is where he becomes the perfect personification of what you and I wrestle with all the time. That's what drives you. You don't want a great job just for the job's sake. You don't want a great family just simply for the family's sake. You don't want great sex simply for the sex's sake. What you want it for is to be satisfied. You want things in life because you really think, though you may have never said it out loud, you think, if I could just get this, I'll be satisfied. If I could just get this, I'll finally have be filled All of you are driven by it. And the truth is, genuine and full satisfaction is a rare experience. I mean, most of our lives, unfortunately, are spent working really hard to get the thing we think will satisfy us, then possessing it and it losing it really quickly and coming down on the back end of being dissatisfied that you aren't satisfied anymore. So much of life is working towards it or lamenting and trying to work back to what you used to. To have. And, I, and by satisfaction, listen, I don't just mean the absence of frustration. I don't just mean the absence of discontentedness, though that's part of it. I mean being filled up. When I say satisfaction, I mean being filled to the brim. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And when you examine your life, if you examine your life, you'll begin to see just how elusive satisfaction truly is. And even when you possess it, when you look back on times you thought you were satisfied, how often do you realize you actually weren't? Like all of you have had seasons where you look back on your life and you realize, man, I thought I was happy, but I really wasn't. I look back and you realize that you were just deceiving yourself. You had those, those thoughts in the back of your mind where you're like, you thought, am I really happy here? Do I really enjoy this relationship? Do I really enjoy this job or this situation? Only to look back and realize you actually didn't and you were faking. Or you look back and you realize, yeah, I was happy to an extent, but my standards were so low. The satisfaction I had was so meager in relation to what I know satisfaction to be now. You look back and you look at, like when you look at your fashion, you could have sworn that I looked amazing, right? And the moment you were convinced, you look back now, you're like, why are my clothes so baggy? I don't understand. Like you look back and you don't really understand. But in the moment, weren't you convinced? Right, in the moment, weren't you convinced that that relationship, that job, that situation, that would bring you satisfaction? I want to look back and realize how wrong you were. There's this strange human experience that all of you have where you look back basically every couple of years, maybe every five years, you look back and you realize you did, you, you look at that version of you and you think, man, I was so stupid. Man, I didn't know anything then. Oh, I had no idea what it meant to be satisfied. So if that happens consistently in your life, guess what? In a couple of years from now, future version of you will look at you today and think, wow, I was so stupid. Right? Five years from now, you'll look at you today and think, I had no idea about this. I thought that's who I was. It wasn't. I thought I was happy, I wasn't. And so if that's the case, how could we ever be sure that what you're aiming at today will actually bring you lasting satisfaction? How could you ever be sure? The truth is, if you're honest, you can't. But Jesus brought a kingdom to show you the way. He brought a kingdom to show you, no, no, I'll show you the way to satisfaction. Here's what he says. 
He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's the first thing I wanna point out in this text for you to consider, is that God wants to bless your desires. God wants to bless your desires. To be human is to hunger and thirst. To be human is to be filled with passion and longing and desires that direct and dictate what you do. God made you with desires woven into who you are. Desire is not a product of sin in the world. So it wasn't as if Adam and Eve before sin were only thinking beings and only acting beings. It wasn't as if it was merely an intellectual interaction with God and with one another. It's not as if the first human desire and passion that they ever experienced was for sin. No, what do you see in Genesis one and two? When God is commanding Adam and Eve, his commands correlate to the desires he put within them. The commands he gives is directing and defining the desires he's already laced within them. So he, de- he commands them to multiply, to subdue the earth, to work it, and to eat from it. All of his commands correspond to longings within them. So when God says, here, eat of these trees, I've given you plentiful food to eat, he's giving them the place, this is where you express the hungers that you feel. He says, here's the land, work it, tend it, cultivate it. This is where you express your desires for work and your ambition to make something that's chaotic and an orderly, life-giving thing. Here, Adam and Eve, here you are to one another. You're wed to each other. You're one flesh now. Fill the earth. This is where you express the desire you have for sexual expression and intimacy. He's constantly saying in Genesis 1, He made this and he made this and it was good. And he saw it and he blessed it. God is constantly speaking blessing and approval and pleasure in his creation because he knows laced within Adam and Eve is a desire for acceptance and approval. And he says, here's my word for you to hear to receive that. That's where you express your desires to be loved. His commands correlate with the longings he placed within them. I'm telling you this because I want you to know God is not a killjoy of passion. He's not a killjoy of desire and longing. He's the maker of them. He's the fulfiller of them. See, sin and Satan did not create desire, but here's what they did. They corrupted it. They corrupted it. See, I want you to really understand, I don't want you to believe that God sees the desires, the longings, the passions you have at the most fundamental level. I don't want you to see them as God is like seeing as a necessary evil he has to work around. Those desires in you, they're meant to push you to God. The longings in you, they're meant to drive you to his word. That's what they're meant to do. So I don't want you to demonize them, but also on the other end of it, I want you to make sure you don't idolize them. I want you to know that your desires, because of sin, have been corrupted and distorted in every way. And what we do, instead of letting God's word sift through and interpret which desire is good, which desire is neutral, which desire is bad, what we do instead is we trust our own intuition. We trust the world around us. We have to guard ourselves from idolizing our desires. Simply because you desire something doesn't mean it is good. 
Simply because you desire something doesn't mean that it's a good desire. The existence and the persistence of a desire does not guarantee that desire is a good thing that will bring you joy in life. All that means when you have a desire that exists and persists, all that means is that your desire exists and persists. It does not follow that it necessarily is something you should act upon. But there's always been this notion in humanity that the most happy and the most satisfied life is the one where you always do what feels right. This is the most dominant view in our culture right now, but listen, it's not a new view. Don't view the desire in our culture to just do whatever makes you happy immediately as something new. Just read 1 Corinthians and you'll realize, oh, this has always been a distortion in the world. But here's the truth about that reality. The claim that says just follow your heart, just do what feels right, no one actually believes that. Nobody actually practices that. Because all of us know, once again, intuitively, that if you acted on every desire you ever had, you would not ultimately be satisfied. All of us are picking and choosing which desires do I express And which desires do I ignore? Listen, if you expressed every desire and every thought you ever had in a relationship, trust me, you would no longer be in that relationship. Just see my first year of marriage. That's all that I did. I was like, feel it, say it. Bad. Like, that's what I saw. That did not work. Do it again. See what happens. Oh, also bad. Because I wanted to just do what came naturally to me. What came naturally to me actually was destroying our relationship. Thank God that he is gracious and kind to restore things. No one actually follows this and and does this if you express every action, I mean, every desire and every thought in things like working out or a diet or school or work or anything you want to achieve, if you acted on every desire you ever had, you would make no progress. It would ultimately lead to not being satisfied. See my junior year of college. I did everything I wanted to do and all I had was mediocre grades and and I gained a lot of weight. Wasn't great. Turns out if you just act on every impulse, it will actually end up destroying you. Everybody knows that. It is pretend, usually when we say follow your desires and heart, what we're saying is there are certain desires I want justified So that's why I use that terminology to justify doing the things that I want to do. No one acts on every desire. We all know that. All of us are, so how are you determining which desires you express, which ones you suppress? How are you determining that? You have this unconscious filter you lay on your desires and you say, this one I think will bring me most life and this one won't. And most of us, more than you realize, the way you interpret your desires is from the culture you inherit. Most of the time, whatever family you grew up in, whatever culture you live in, if your culture says these things are good, you tend to see those desires that coincide with what the good is, and you think, that feels right. That's mostly what we do. And then we rely on our culture to define for us what is lasting satisfaction. And then Jesus shows up, and listen, Jesus is not unique by telling you that there are certain desires that you should aim for. Everybody's doing that with you. Everybody's telling you all the time, you should desire this and not this. Jesus is not unique in that way. Everybody's doing that. But here is where he's unique. He says, 
that the desires you should follow that will lead to satisfaction is totally different than what you would expect. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. He is all for you following your desires. He just says, follow the desires that are for righteousness, because that's when you'll get satisfaction. So what does he mean by righteousness? We wanna be satisfied, we have to know what righteousness is. Now this is a biblical word that's pervasive throughout the Bible. It is chock full of biblical depth and meaning. There's no way for me to exhaust it here. But righteousness, you have to understand what it is if you wanna know who God is, you wanna know how you relate to him, you wanna know what he expects of us. But righteousness is one of those words that's in our religious vocabulary but we don't use it very often in everyday life. Like we, we rarely use the term righteous in any setting. The only time we really use it is using the term self-righteous and it's derogatory. So when we try to think about how do I define righteousness, it's a hard word to come up to define the concept for. So let me give you a succinct definition that'll give you some understanding as what Jesus is talking about here. Here's what righteousness is. It's harmony with the character and word of God. It's harmony with the character and the word of God. Righteousness is life the way that it should be. Not the way that it is, not the way that it could be, but the way that it should be according to who God is and what he has said. Now, most of us, if you've grown up in a Protestant background, we tend to think of righteousness solely as an individual state with God. Right, we tend to think about, okay, I'm righteous before God, and that's true. If anyone wants to know God in love and not wrath, you need a certain set of righteousness to stand before him. But there's also righteousness that you practice. Also righteousness that, that defines the way you view yourself and the way you view and treat other people. There's also righteousness that, that should define a corporate church. Righteousness that should define the society that we live in. Don't just boil it down to an individual stance, an individual standing before God. Righteousness defines all of life the way it should be, the way it should be according to the person and the word of God. I'll give you just three instances of the word righteousness to give you kind of some framework for it just in the Sermon on the Mount. Just in the next 15 verses or so, look at how Jesus uses it. So Jesus says in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for there's the kingdom of heaven. He's saying living in harmony with God will sometimes mean friction with the world. That's what he's saying. Matthew 5, 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you have to have a track record of faithfully fulfilling all the expectations of God more than the most disciplined people that you know. And then Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness, something you do before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in, he in heaven. He's saying be careful that you're not doing what you should be doing in order to be seen by others. So on and on I could go, but I hope you're beginning to see you cannot understand Jesus. You cannot follow Jesus if you don't value and understand righteousness. Now, this is where the tension comes in for me and I think for us. Here's a question I've been asking all week, just from, honestly from myself, because I'm the chief of sinners in this regard. How do we balance then, especially in our context, how do we balance then righteousness 
with also the good and right value for authenticity. How do we balance these two things? When righteousness, being righteous, and being authentic are at odds with one another, what do we do? Let me say this before I get into it. Authenticity is so refreshing, isn't it? It's so refreshing to be around someone who is being authentic and sincere and transparent with you. And I want you to know the Christian faith uniquely, uniquely encourages people to be authentic. Think about our faith. What's one of the core things we believe? God made everything from nothing. God made human beings as his image bearers. Psalm 139, God made individuals as image bearers. That's saying, God, listen, God made you and there's no one else like you. From the scriptures. You didn't evolve into some person who has a certain set of genes randomly. You have your life because God himself wove you together. There's no one else in history like you. Nobody. So why would, why would God want you to be someone you weren't? He's only made one like you. His creation of us encourages, be authentic then, because we need you, because God made you and no one else like you. Think about the, the gospel we believe. The salvation God gives to us, what does it require of you in order to believe it? Honesty. It requires honesty. Because what do you have to believe in order to be in the kingdom of God? Jesus died for your sins. Inherent in that statement is, I'm a big failure. That's what that means. In case you're like, how do I become a Christian? Admit you're a big failure. It's all it is, right? Jesus died for my sins. Inherent within that is I had sins, I had failures that someone had to die for that I couldn't make up for. So what does that mean? To pretend or to hide your failures, to act as if you don't struggle is not noble. It contradicts the faith that you have. To act like you have it all together contradicts the very gospel you believe. The gospel you believe says you don't have it all together. You're not nearly as good as people think that you are. So it encourages authenticity. When you read the Psalms, th those are not safe for the whole family sort of Psalms. They're not. They pray raw, honest things. When, when he's saying things like crush the teeth of their children, they're like, David, I wouldn't have said that one. That's just tough, right? That's private journal stuff, not public stuff, right? It just feels rough, but he's being honest. So let me just say before I talk about the, the distinction, you have to know how exhilarating and terrifying it is to follow Jesus into authenticity. It is uniquely in so many ways an aspect of our Christian faith. But this is, and, and I think all of us in this room love that. I haven't met anyone who's like, I love fake people. I just haven't met you yet. Maybe you're here or you live in Dallas somewhere. Um, oh, is that too? Sorry. That's not in my notes. I just said it. Um, I'm from Dallas, so I know it really well. Um, whew. Um, this is where, because Austin, we love authenticity. This is where we need a caution, and I, I, I need a caution from Jesus. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for authenticity. He does not say, blessed are those who are honest to a fault. No. 
He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Sometimes your longing to be real and authentic will fit perfectly in line with righteousness. When God's word says, confess your sins, be honest, that's when it fits perfectly. But then there will be times when for you to be honest and for you to be real would mean necessarily you being unrighteous and you living in a way that's not in step with God, his character, and his word. And so when you have those tension points, which one do we value more? Righteousness or authenticity? What do you do? In those moments, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, in those moments, you have to remember, wait, wait, who are you most truly? You have to remember who you really are. Because if you're a Christian, who you are, even if you don't feel it, is righteous because of Jesus. That's who you are. Though you're filled with all sorts of desires that are contrary to God's word and character, that doesn't define who you are anymore. That's who you used to be. But Jesus made you brand new. See, we value righteousness in such a way, not in order to gloss over our struggles, not in order to pretend that we're better than we are, but we value righteousness because we want to live in light of who God has made us to be. Who you truly are is righteous if you are a Christian. The defining trait of the new life you have in Christ is righteousness. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love, God is not trying to make you a little bit better. He's trying to make you new. Jesus didn't come just to make you a little bit more moral. He's trying to turn your life upside down and give you new joys and new realities. You're brand new. That's who you are now. Look at what defines you. A couple verses down, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened? The new you, the brand new version has become what? The righteousness of God. Jesus died in such a way that all of the sin and punishment we deserved went onto him and all of the righteousness and the rewards associated with it that he deserved came to us. That's the gospel we believe. He did all the work, and we get all of the benefits. That means the most authentic version of you, if you're a Christian, is the righteous version of you. That's who you truly are. Be honest. Be real. Who you really are is defined by God, not by you. So when you have desires that are contrary to him, and you will, when you have desires to hoard your money and not be generous, that's who you used to be. When you have desires to express your sexuality outside of the marriage covenant, that's who you used to be. When you have desires to hold grudges and be bitter, when you have desires to find your identity and your worth and your performance at work or at school or in your family, that's who you used to be. Do you feel them? Absolutely. But it's not who you are anymore. Who you truly are are those desires you still have for the righteousness of God. 
those desires you have. No, I want my money and my sexuality and my relationships and my church and my city and the nations and the country in which I live. I want it to be fined by the word of God. I want it to be rendered and I want it to be arrested by the word of God. I want everything in my life to be submitted to him. Those desires you have, Christian, that's who you are. That's who you are. So you want to be authentic, then be authentic. Be authentic to who God made you to be in Christ. Galatians 5 gives clarity to this like no other text, I think, in the New Testament. It describes this struggle of being a Christian in the desires of the flesh and of the spirit. Verse 17 says this, Galatians 5, 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To be a Christian is to have competing desires in you, so you know. That is not a sign that you're not a believer. It's actually a sign that you are, okay? He's gonna define for us, well, what are, what are the desires of the old me? What are the desires of the new me? Look at verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh, who you used to be, are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you only desire those things, it's a sign you haven't been saved yet. Any transitions, verse 22. But here's the desires that are truly you now if you're a Christian. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. They're still in you, but they are not you anymore. Verse 25, this is the life of the spirit you've been given. If we live by the spirit, which we do, let us also keep in step with the spirit. The Spirit of God has filled you up, Christian, to produce in you new desires in line with the righteousness of God. So to truly live an authentic life as a Christian, here's what it means. We value righteousness over sin. And our authenticity is being honest when we struggle to value righteousness over sin. But to be authentic to who we truly are is to choose righteousness. Now the question you need to ask yourself right now, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like, do you desire it? Now, notice what Jesus is doing. Not, have you performed a righteous deed before? I didn't ask you your track record. I didn't ask you what you do in your life. That's not what I asked you. I ask you, do you hunger and thirst for it? Do you long for it? Is it an internal reality you hope for? Or, or is following Jesus more than you would ever tell anybody in this church a chore? Is it, is it one of those things that you're just doing that you know you're supposed to do, but nothing in you wants to do? It's like drinking kombucha, right? You're like, I know I should, but it's terrible, right? Great gut health, terrible taste, right? Like that should, that should be its slogan, um, is following Jesus like that for you? 
If you love kombucha, pick a different thing. I don't know, right? Like, I love it. Great. Is it always, do, listen, do you always need external stimulus to make you make God a priority? It's like someone when they're doing the paddles on their chest to revive them. Do you always need the external shock? Because truthfully, there's not much life with them. Now listen, I know some of you in this room are Christians and you can remember a time where following Jesus was what you wanted to do, but you haven't felt that way in a while. And it, you may ask this question and it may just be a sign that you are in a really, really tough season. You're in a season of suffering. You're in a season of uncovering, just being wounded by other people. That's totally realistic. But if you've never really known what it means to genuinely want to do these things, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just do righteousness, to hunger and thirst for it, then you may not be in the kingdom of God. You may, you could attend church and read the Bible all you want, but if you don't hunger and thirst for it, I don't know that you've ever truly tasted it. Several years ago, I was getting lunch with a, a former college student of ours, and she was, we're sitting out for lunch, and we were processing through kind of life post-college and what she was doing. She began to tell me that one of her closest friends after college had actually left the faith. And when someone you love who's close to you leaves the faith, it is a difficult thing to walk through. But one of the things that she was actually struggling most with is that now that her friend was overtly not a Christian, that her friend was actually happier not being a Christian. She, she knew her well. She, she was friends with her. And so she saw her in college when she was trying to follow Jesus and she just was always burdened by it, always wrestling, always questioning, never felt solid, never felt firm in the faith, always just feeling guilty for things. And now that she wasn't a Christian, I remember she told me, she's like, Tyler, she, I'm telling you, she's just happier right now. And it was messing with her world because her world said, and so many of us think that there's no way to have moments of happiness outside of Jesus. But listen, if you don't genuinely love Jesus, then following Jesus is burdensome. If you don't love him, if you don't enjoy him, then it is a chore, then it is a burden. One of the marks of someone who's been filled with the spirit is this shift that his commands are no longer burdensome to us. First John 5 says this, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. When you've entered the kingdom of God, the spirit of God changes the way you look at the commands of God. Now hear me, that does not mean, if you're a Christian, that does not mean we don't struggle to obey. It doesn't mean it's always easy. Listen, there is a massive difference, an eternal difference in his commands being weighty and his commands being burdensome. There's a massive difference in that. To follow Jesus in the way he calls us to is a weighty task. All of us know who are Christians, it's difficult. And because of our sin, it's a struggle. But we wouldn't begrudge Jesus for calling us to follow him. We don't see him as a burden we have to, we have to carry. We see it as a weight that we're going to go under because we know at the end of the day, there's life there even when it's hard. Because when you haven't tasted and seen that Jesus is better than life. I mean, if you haven't for yourself tasted and seen that Jesus is better than life, then of course his commands are burdensome. 
And this is why, though, this is why hungering and thirsting for righteousness leads to satisfaction. You want to know why? Because hungering and thirsting for righteousness means you'll always be drawn back to Jesus. That's what it means. You'll always be led to satisfaction because hungering and thirsting for righteousness is going to lead you to Jesus. He's the righteousness of God come to us. He's the most satisfying person you could ever meet or know because he can quench thirst that only that you have in ways only he can. This is the promise Jesus made to the woman at the well and he makes to us. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You have thirst all the time. And the reason Jesus used hunger and thirst because you have these thirsts for approval and power and comfort and security and love that even when they get satisfied once by something, they, keep, they come back again the next day. All of us have had those moments where you're like, I could never eat another bite. Four hours later, like, how you feeling? I could eat. Like you just feel it's back, right? We've all had that. You have these longings in you that the Christian faith is not telling you to be quiet about. You have these longings in that Jesus is saying, bring it on, I have water that doesn't run out. And I thought about different ways to talk about the ways Jesus is better than anything else, but I think maybe giving you an illustration from my life would help you see how this actually works. One of the things that I've always longed for since I was a little boy was to be wanted and to feel protected. I don't know why. I have wounds in my life that, make, that really speed that up and make me want that even more. But since I can remember, the idea of being betrayed is like my worst fear. My worst fear. Someone that I let in betrays me. That's my worst fear. And so one of the things that I found in my life doing, because I had this longing, this thirst to feel protected, to feel um, like someone's looking out for me, I just gravitated towards people who, of strength who could do that for me. High school, college. And as much as I, I would pretend and act like I don't need anybody, what I was really saying is I'm not letting anybody in who could actually hurt me or betray me. And so what I found was I found a mentor here at the Stone who was an incredible mentor to me. And I remember we, we were having some tension because our relationship was changing and honestly I was getting to a place where I needed to Honestly, honestly, grow up and do my own thing and lead other people. And we're having tension because I, I didn't realize at the time, but I was longing to feel protected by somebody and I could feel he wasn't playing that role in my life anymore. I remember we went to dinner and we kind of had some like airing of grievances and worked through some of our issues. And it wasn't honestly his fault or my fault. It was just transition and life was changing. And transitions have this way in your life of stirring up. Like when you move to a new city, you start a new job, all of a sudden you're like, I don't know who I am anymore. Because probably some longings and thirst that you had are being satisfied by that thing. And when that thing's taken away, you don't know where to go now. And I remember driving away, and it became clear to me in that meal that this mentor of mine was no longer a mentor to me. It became clear, like, our relationship has changed. And I had this thought, and I remember driving home, and I remember feeling so alone in the universe. It just hit me at the end of the day, 
nobody's looking out for you, Tyler. It's all on you is what I felt. And I realized I had one of the best mentors you could have. And just because of transition, that was gone. And I was left there thirsty, hungry for someone to look out for me. And in that moment, what I realized, the word of God came flooding into my mind of the verses where God says, fear not for I'm with you. God never says, Tyler, how dare you long for protection? How dare you long for someone not to betray you? That's a great thing to long for, but no one can do that for you, Tyler. Jesus comes to me in Matthew 28 with a promise. He says, no, no, I will be with you to the end of the age. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. All that's been given to me, so now he can make a promise to me and say, oh, you want protection and security? Don't settle for people who have no control over life anyway. Come to me and have that thirst met that hunger satisfied, that I don't have to look to you or this church or anybody else to ultimately look out for me. I have a father in heaven who runs the world and he'll take care of me. And I remember that that wasn't, listen, that was not like in a moment. I was like, oh, I believe it, moving on. That's not how that happened. It was wrestling for about a year where I just kept, I couldn't figure out what, what was wrong in me. And it wasn't that I should want protection less or want security less is that I should go to the right person. The kingdom of God is not scared of thirsty people. The kingdom of God is not scared of people with deep desires and passions. No, those are the people who tend to get it. No, the the people who struggle most with the kingdom of God are those of you in this room, more than you realize, you've grown accustomed to being parched in this world. You've settled for meager portions of security. You think money is going to protect you? It can't. Meager portions of love. You think that person will never hurt you? They will. Meager portions of power. You think that title and that amount of money you make is going to give you status forever? It won't. But with God, you have someone who can meet all those longings and all those thirsts and never grow tired of filling you up. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you if you hunger and thirst for righteousness because that will lead you back to him. You know what Jesus loves to do? Give you water that doesn't wear out. To give you food that doesn't perish. So what do you do right now if you're realizing, I don't hunger and thirst for him. I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me give you a couple quick things and we're done. Be honest. Be authentic. Nothing is gained by you faking in this church like you love God. One of the things I do with people in the church all the time is just say, hey, just admit how much you don't love God. Like, can I say that? Is that okay? Just say, I don't really want you much. Right? I don't want to be with you right now. You need to be honest about that. But then own up to how wrong you are for that. Own up to God and say, I don't want to be around you. And I have to confess, you're right about me. I settle for small things. I settle for small joys. You're right about me. I need help. And then ask God to send his spirit to revive your appetites. And no, listen, the spirit of God is the one that changes your appetites and your spiritual taste buds. He's the one that does that. Let me just give you a short little adage to get in your brain that was given to me when I was a brand new crowd. I was 18. Someone told me this and it has stuck since I was 18. You need to starve what needs to die and feed what needs to grow. The desires in you 
for things that aren't of God, you can't change appetites, but you can starve those things out. And for the desires for righteousness that the Spirit of God's given to you, you can't make that your all-consuming desire necessarily, but you can feed those things with your life and the decisions that you make. Because Jesus gave his life for you so that you could become the righteousness of God and be satisfied by him. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, we are a people who hunger and thirst for so many things. And God, all of our lives are dictated by either desiring to be satisfied or giving up that we could never be satisfied. And God, I am in awe of the fact that you come to us not telling us to suppress those longings, to get rid of those desires, but you are telling us to come to you with them. To not settle for people who aren't strong enough. And to not believe that there's no satisfaction possible. Jesus, you promised us that you would give us water in such a way we would never thirst again. Not that we would never feel the longings again, but you would be someone who never ran out of satisfaction. God, I want my brothers and sisters in this room, those who don't even believe in you in this room, I want all of us to remember that it's mercy and grace alone that allows us to come to you with confidence. We can ask big things and expect you to satisfy because Jesus, you're the one who promised to. So God, whatever we need to starve out, give us the strength and the faith to do so. Whatever desires we need to feed and fan into flame, give us faith to do so. And Holy Spirit, change our appetites. Oh God, change what I find satisfying. God, for us as a people, let sin and unrighteousness, let that become bitter tasting to us. But let love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and self-control be the things that are sweet to us. Because we want to be satisfied. God, I want to be happy. And you're telling me that's where you are. Give us faith to come to you, both in song and this week, in whatever ways that means. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, church, let's stand, let's sing together. Thank <laughs> you.